Praise the Lord. So good to see everyone here this morning. God bless each and every one of you. Let's all stand, please. Amen. We are gathered together again in the presence of Almighty God. Where God is, there is liberty, there's victory, there's deliverance, salvation, healing, provision, whatever it is we have need of today. Amen. I'm excited, folks, because God is here. Praise God. God is so faithful to us. When we call out on His name, He is faithful to respond, faithful to answer. Praise God. I love Him so much. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You are so great. You are so wondrous. You are so glorious in this and in every place. You are worshipped and You are praised. You are lauded and magnified in Your creation. All of creation bows its knee to You, its Creator, to give glory and honor unto the King of kings and unto the Lord of lords today. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. You're having an awesome day today, Lord. Therefore, so am I. I'm having a great day in You. You are so good to us. You are so faithful to us. So merciful and so loving and so kind to us. Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to turn around those things that You bestow upon us to give to others. The mercy that You've given to me, help me to share that with others. The love that You've bestowed upon me, help me to share it with others. Hallelujah, Jesus. Those things that You have done in my life, help me to demonstrate that to those around me. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that You would assume control of this service from this point forward. This is Your service. This is Your church. We are Your people. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray that this would be Your agenda, that this would be uh, Your will being manifest in our economy here this morning. Above all else, Lord, that Your great and precious name, Your wondrous name, would be glorified in our midst here today. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Give glory to the Lord our God, for He is great and greatly to be praised. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We serve an awesome God today. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated this morning. Amen. And our youth will be dismissed at this time. Praise God. Amen. Our review from our lesson last week, uh, we talked about uh, the 70 times 7. This month we're talking about forgiveness. Last week we talked about the idea was in Jesus' day that uh, you forgive someone three times and that was good. You were good. You didn't have to forgive anymore. You were golden at that point. You've done your duty. Peter, he really thought to up that in the presence of Jesus, really impressed the Lord. Uh, so he was like, so we, baby, let's go up seven times. What do you think about that, Jesus? And Jesus, he kind of corrected him by saying that you should forgive someone indefinitely. That's what 70 times 7 means. Just keep forgiving. There is no point at which we have the right to start judging or condemning someone. I've forgiven you 3,297 times. That's enough. Jesus says, no, it's not. i got to do the 98th as well. 
If we cannot imitate Jesus in forgiveness as He forgave us, then He promises to imitate us in judgment. Amen. We need to do our level best to imitate Jesus in forgiveness. Matthew 6, 12, 14, and 15 says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I mean, I know we kind of... That's such a heavy statement to make, and there are others that I could have uh, read as well, stating the exact same thing. And it's it's a hard saying, folks, because forgiveness is sometimes very difficult for us to accomplish. I mean, we can say the words, that's easy enough, but actually letting that soak into my heart and my spirit, that's something else entirely. And so we kind of joke and make light about it a little bit and kind of throw it to the side and hopefully we can forget about it. But we can't forget about it, folks. If I don't forgive others, I will not be forgiven of God. And I understand, again, very serious offenses against us might be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to forgive in our own power. There are some things so heinous and so mind-blowing that people endure, that people experience. You know, I I have a hard time just, well, just, just forgive them. I mean, that's scriptural, that's biblical, but... There, there's a process there that, that people have to go through. And the Lord is a part of that process. The Lord gives more grace when He commands us to do something. Even as difficult as forgiveness in some of these awful situations. Child rape. I mean, long-term abuse. I mean, there, are, there are situations that just come up, that, that pop into my mind when I think of just horrible situations. And we're called to forgive those people. I am commanded to forgive those people. How do you do that? Well, God gives more grace. When God commands us to do something, He gives us the ability to do it. So I've got to lean on Him for strength and for encouragement and and, and for, for miracle working power to somehow change my spirit, change my heart, and bring me to the place where I can forgive. Because, folks, the things I did against Jesus... He had no problem forgiving them. There was no hesitation. As soon as I came before Him and asked, He forgave. I need to do the same with others. Amen. Daily devotions. As we go through these devotions, remember that God's desire is always mercy. It's always deliverance. It's always victory. It's always uh, liberty. The year of Jubilee was instituted by God for the express purpose of setting those in slavery, those in debt, those in bondage, free. It was a commandment throughout all the land. The year of Jubilee, sound the trumpet, declare liberty in Israel. If you're in debt, that debt is forgiven. If you're in slavery, you're set free. It's always God's desire to set free. John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. That abundant life. 
the connotations that are wrapped up in this verse is a whole lot more than what, it, what the words say specifically. Liberty, victory, deliverance, provision, abundant life is all provided by Jesus Christ. John 8.36 says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. He sets you free. And He has set you free. You're free indeed. It doesn't matter what voices are coming against that. It doesn't matter what people are saying about that. Uh, I mean, you're an alcoholic. You're always going to be an alcoholic. No! Not by the power of God. God can deliver an alcoholic. He can make it as if they've never touched a drop in their life. When the sun sets free, you're free indeed. The first day uh, relates the account of two dueling men. One was shot and declared, I do not or cannot forgive you. But as death approached, however, uh, he ended up declaring, I can forgive you. I do forgive you. When we consider our own mortality, the short amount of time we have on this world, forgiveness uh, perhaps becomes easier. and It's easier for us to accomplish when we put our lives in perspective. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, so be diligent to forgive today. Amen. Day two, according to the world-famous cellist, this is an interesting name, Yo-Yo Ma. Uh, he says this, and I quote, The professional musician should aspire to the state of the beginner. Unquote. If a person thinks about the years of training, criticisms, or people's judgments, a musician will play terribly. To play wonderfully, he says, one must constantly remind oneself to play with the abandon of the child who is just learning the cello. Amen. When we become adults, we've already accumulated a full load of resentment, fear, bitterness, and other weights that are very difficult, if not impossible for us, again, in our own power to overcome. But Matthew 18.3 says, And said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's so much in that verse. Uh, we need to become like children, folks who can forgive quickly, love deeply, believe easily. Those things that we see in Scripture. Day three, God instituted commandments to release those sold into slavery because it's in our nature to use God's blessings to curse others and to oppress others. I've heard it stated, uh, and I think this is true, uh, if all the wealth in the United States were evenly distributed... You take all the wealth away from everyone and give everyone an equal portion. Within seven years, it would end up right back where it started. And there's a reason for that. People who have money know how to make money, know how to keep money. Those who don't have money, well, for one reason or another, they don't know how to make or keep money. That's why I'm where I'm at. Amen. So there we go. <laughs> Amen. Everything God blesses us with is a responsibility. Not for us to lavish on ourselves, or worse yet, to use for vengeance or to oppress others. Has anyone read or seen the movie Count of Monte Cristo? I mean, the whole, the whole thing is about that. I actually read the book. It's way different than the movie, surprisingly. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was an amazing read. In any case, this guy finds a huge, comes into this huge fortune, basically an infinite 
fortune at the time. An infinite amount of money. And uh, the idea is uh, he's supposed to use it for good. But he can't because he's so consumed with vengeance against the people that put him in prison here. Uh, he uses it to get his vengeance. And in the movie, anyway, uh, he comes around and, and blah, blah, blah. But, but the, the blessings of the Lord are not to be used for our own personal vendettas, our own personal gain. They're to be used for His purposes. We are to discharge faithfully the office of the steward and use God's blessings according to His will. Now, having said that, stewards do get paid for their services, right? If I give my money to a money management company, they take a little bit off the top. They get paid for that. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. <clears throat> so when the Lord blesses you and gives provision unto you and allows you to be the steward of more and more things, He expects that you're going to use a portion of that. God is no man's debtor, folks. Uh, he, does, he does allow us to take compensation, if I can use it that way, for services rendered. But remember, just remember, that's not ours. It's God's. We are stewards of God's stuff, God's things. And we are to use it accordingly. Amen. Day four. Charles Dickens' father was imprisoned for debt, which at the time was a familial disgrace. It was a big disgrace for a member of your family to be in debtor's prison. I suppose it would be. Uh, through writing, though, Dickens discovered that disgrace was not his identity. Amen. How do you see yourself? Do you, do you identify with past failures, regrets, situations, or do you identify yourself in Jesus Christ? Is that who you identify yourself as? We need to identify ourselves as a child of the Most High God. Our identity is found in Him. He's made us brand new creatures. Everything has passed away. Everything has become new. Our identity is in Him. Amen. Day 5. King George approved the founding of a colony in Georgia entirely from those in debtor's prison. I found this fascinating. They could either stay in prison, they had a choice, or they could go to Georgia and help start a colony. Become farmers in an untamed land. Sounds exciting to me. Back in the day, I would have jumped at the chance. I don't know too much anymore, but uh, back in the day, I sure would have. That, that sounds like an adventure. Some stayed in prison because it seemed too hard to go to the Americas and start over. I don't know how easy they had it in debtor's prison, but I don't know if it would have been any harder... In any case, uh, the, uh, the analogy I thought was amazing. Unforgiveness is a prison that some refuse to be released from because it seems too hard. Forgiveness releases us, and even though it can be extremely difficult, the effort is very, very worth it. Amen. Those were our daily devotions for last week. Uh, getting into our lesson this week, we'll find our Scripture text from Luke chapter 23. We'll read verses 32 through 43. Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Begins by saying this. There were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. 
And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiments and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus said unto him, Verily, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. <clears throat> Amen. Matt and Lydia were heading out to dinner and maybe a little shopping on that Friday night. They motored down the main boulevard in their Dodge Spirit. Sorry about that. Looking for the right place for a dinner date. Since they were in the Orlando metro area, they were more, there were more restaurants than Disney had Dalmatians. Before long, they noticed police presence everywhere. Police cars sped by with lights flashing and sirens blaring. Police officers and sheriff deputies were on foot shining flashlights as they searched the ditches. Helicopters circled overhead, shining their spotlights on the unsuspecting city below. Matt and Lydia finished a delicious dinner and headed back toward their apartment. Even after hours of this countrywide manhunt, the police were still searching for their suspect. Matt pulled the car in front of their apartment building and ran over to Lydia's side to open her door. Suddenly, he heard some rustling in the woods just behind the apartment. He whispered to his wife, I, I just heard something. It sounds like something or someone's in the woods. Before they had a chance to head up the stairs and into their apartment, Matt saw what he had heard. A young man in his 20s, wearing jeans and a dark t-shirt, was crawling out of the woods and into the clearing right behind the apartment building, right in front of Matt and Lydia. When the man made it to the clearing, he stood straight up and stared at the young couple. Everything started to make sense. That guy may be the guy the police were looking for. Dozens of heavily armed, highly trained officers and deputies, canine units and helicopter units were all looking for one guy. And there stood Matt at 150 pounds, soaking wet with key rings in both pockets. He hadn't won an arm wrestling contest in 10 years. There he was looking right at the suspect, and the suspect was looking right back at him. Matt mumbled to his sweet wife, We need to get out of here now. He and Lydia moved toward the trunk of the car, opened it up like they didn't see anyone out of the ordinary, and grabbed their shopping bags. Matt was trying to be cool and nonchalant, but inside he was screaming, Help! He closed the trunk. Together they walked toward the stairs and bolted up to their apartment, where Matt called 911 and waited for help to arrive. That was probably how people felt around the two thieves we meet in Luke 23 and Matthew 27. They were probably not garden variety thieves, boosting flat screens out of living rooms. For them to be crucified, those thieves either, either hurt someone in their burglaries or stole from someone very powerful. They made their living off the dying. On that dark Friday, they were going to pay for their crimes. 
as both of those thieves found themselves crucified on crosses right next to Jesus. Amen. Jesus right in the middle of them. After all the good Jesus had wrought, all the healings, all the ministry, all the love and forgiveness He tried to spread, His end, it appeared at least, was right here. Hanging on a cross between two disgusting thieves. Being in the center meant He would have been the main display. That He was the worst criminal of the three. The most despised. 1 Corinthians 5.21 kind of gives credence to that in a way. It says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. All the sin of all the people in all the world, in all of history, was poured out on Jesus on that moment. He became sin for us. From the early morning to when he died around 3 p.m., the crowd continually mocked and abused him. The Romans wrapped a scarlet robe around him, shoved a crown of thorns on his head, and placed a reed in his hand, imitating a scepter. They pretended to kneel before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they mercilessly whipped and beat him. And then they nailed him to the tree. The Jews themselves, God's people, not wanting to be outdone by the Romans, added their own mockings. We read in Matthew 27, 39-43, this account, And they that passed by reviled Him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyedest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he'll have him. For he said, I am the son of God. They did everything they could to get Jesus up on that cross. And now they were rejoicing over it. Gloating. Over their victory. The crowd and the soldiers took their heads in scorn. Blasphemed Jesus. All the while Jesus was pouring out His love and His mercy and His compassion hanging on that cross. For all humanity. Because He was dying for their sins. He was dying for our sins. He was even dying for their ridicule and their mocking and their blasphemy. How does it feel to be disrespected? How does it make you feel when someone mocks you or ridicules you? Most would say, most probably would not answer, pleasant. I like it. It's enjoyable. I don't think anyone would say that. Unless you're crazy. Are you crazy? Okay. <laughs> no, most people, they don't like that. They <laughs> you have to tell me what you said afterward. 
Most people do not like being ridiculed or mocked. As a child, when I would try to do that with my, to my brother or sister, I'd get scolded for it. It's wrong to do that. You don't do that to people. You don't disrespect people. You don't mock or ridicule people. I read an account uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And there are others, again, that I could have pulled from. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, uh, starting with verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 4. Now ye are full, now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place, and labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world, and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. So when I read things like this, and I see the example of Jesus on the cross, I, I come to the conclusion that if I am reviled, if I am despised or disrespected, if I am uh, ridiculed, I'm in good company. They did that to Jesus. I mean, if you're not going to respect Jesus for crying out loud, why in the world do I think they're going to respect me? They didn't respect the apostles. I think uh, maybe we shouldn't worry so much about being respected. Maybe we shouldn't focus too much on, on uh, uh, well, let me say it this way. Jesus really wasn't concerned about all that. Neither should we be. I'm interested in one person's opinion and one, one only. And that's Jesus Christ. You can think about me whatever you want to think. Now, there are, there are blessings and benefits for you to think a specific way, for sure. I mean, I wasn't raised in this. I came into this as a young adult, but people taught me uh, you should respect your elders. You should respect the, the pastor. You should respect the leadership. And there are blessings, spiritual blessings in store when I do. And so I would encourage you all to do that for your sake. But me personally, I don't care what you think about me. I would prefer that you like me and, and we get along and all of that. Sure. Who doesn't like to be liked? But at the end of the day, folks, all I care about is what does Jesus think about me? As long as my opinion, as long as God's opinion of me is good, my relationship with Him is good, I'm good. I, that's okay. I'm good. Uh, 
whatever anyone else thinks about me, well, I'll pray for you. Uh, and, and hopefully, you know, we're able to come around and, and hopefully you can respect me for your sake, for the blessing's sake. But in any case, uh, Jesus, the apostles, uh, they didn't seem too concerned about it. They were doing the will of God. That's what they were moving forward in. So I'm not going to be too concerned about it either. That sign that was placed on top of Jesus, this is the King of the Jews. I've heard excellent, excellent messages on that. Uh, one in particular talked about the Greek and the the Greek and the Hebrew letters and went off into that. I mean, it was absolutely mind-blowing. But uh, the Romans put that up there for one reason. Now, there, God had reasons, I believe. But their reason was, he thinks he's a king. This is what happens to kings that come up against Roman rule. That was their reason for putting it up. He declared himself to be a king. We put him down. That's the power of Rome. That's why they had the sign up there. But, all of this mocking, all of this ridicule, Him on the cross in the first place, it, I mean, in one way it was just a misunderstanding. They didn't know who He was. They couldn't see who He really was. He really was the Son of God. He really was God manifest in flesh. Jesus had not come to earth as a rival to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in Judea. He wasn't come to earth to, to overthrow Caesar. He wasn't come to planet earth to, to uh, establish a new monarchy in Judea, in Israel. He didn't come for any of that. Now one day Jesus will be king over everything and everyone. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I don't care how much you hate Him. I don't care how much you despise Him. I don't care how much you, you desperately try to push Him out of existence. Your knee is going to bow and your tongue is going to confess that He is Lord. That He is Lord of all. But that day is not yet. That day will He will judge righteous judgment is not yet. At this point in history, where Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus had come to die. Fulfilling hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. Fulfilling His plan from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3. He came to die so that the price of our sins would be paid in full. That justice would be served. God's justice would be satisfied. The reality is that every man, woman, and child on planet earth nailed Him to that cross. The Jews didn't. The Jews facilitated it. They were the ones that pounded the nails. But He was on that cross because of me. Because of what I did. He 
He came to pay those sins. He came to pay the debt in full. Everything. So that He could forgive my debt. So that He could make me new. So that He could save my soul. Deuteronomy 21 and 23 says this, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. That verse is quoted in Galatians 3 and 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The cross was a place of shame. It was a place of dishonor. That was where the accursed went to die. To the Jews, the cross made Jesus repugnant and unworthy of their faith. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved. It is the power of God. To us, which are saved, the cross makes Jesus beautiful and praiseworthy. We know what the cross represents. It wasn't the death of a criminal. It wasn't the death of a, of a despised nobody. It was God wrapped Himself in flesh, paying for my sins Himself. That's what the cross represents to me. That's what the cross represents to all those who have partaken of the mercies of God. Our right response to the cross is worship. Thankfulness. We worship Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Worship is not simply words. It's not singing a song in church service, although that's part of it. Worship is how we live our lives. How we respond to the presence of God. How we respond to the Word of God. The commandment of the Lord as it's received by us. All of those are acts of worship to God. It's expressed in how we live our lives, how we speak, the decisions we make. We need to speak and live in a manner worthy of our high calling. We are children of the Most High God. We are not paupers. We are not beggars. We're not sinners anymore. We were sinners. But now we're children of the Most High God. If you've been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, you're a child of God. You've entered into a covenant relationship with the Almighty. You're a new creature in Him. Live according to that truth. Live according to that high calling that God has placed on each and every one of us. Amen. Let's talk about the thieves. One of the thieves railed on Jesus and started tearing into him. If you're the Messiah, if you're the Savior King, then get to saving. If you got so much power, start using it. Start with yourself. And then once you're freed, free me too. Can you imagine someone? What position was this guy in? 
Was he in a position to be talking like this? I mean, seriously. When Jesus told the parable about the the guy that went before the king, he owed 10,000 talents. Can you imagine if the guy that owed the king 10,000 talents said, You're a king, you got all kinds of money. You should just forgive it. Can you imagine that? What do you think the king, how do you think he would have responded to that? (laughs) Take him away. I don't want to see him again. This is exactly what this guy on the cross is doing to Jesus. He needs salvation. He said, I want to be saved. Save yourself and us. Save me. He recognizes that he's in a predicament here. But how does he come to Jesus? Arrogantly. Demands to be saved. Prove it. This is not the proper attitude of someone seeking salvation. When we come to Jesus Christ, folks, we don't demand Jesus prove Himself to us before we'll consider living for Him. If you are who you say you are, Jesus, I'm going to need some proof. And then maybe we'll talk about me serving you. Absolutely not. Oh, my word. We don't demand anything of Jesus. I'm not in a position to demand anything of Him. He doesn't owe me anything. What does Jesus owe us? Absolutely nothing. I owe Him everything. We don't arrogantly barge into the presence of Jesus and start shouting our demands to Him. Blast open the, the, the King's door and stomp up before the throne and start shouting demands. You've got to be kidding me. Who needs saving again? Jesus doesn't. I do. Who does the saving again? I don't. Jesus does. Jesus has everything I need. I got nothing for Him. I don't have anything He needs. He's got everything I need. So how should I approach this this entity? How should I approach this King, this God? Very softly. Very meekly. I need to adopt a proper attitude when I enter into the presence of this King. I know He's my Heavenly Father. I know He loves me. I know all of that. I know He wants me to enter into His presence. But at the same time, folks, i got to recognize who He is. He's my King. He's my Lord. He's my Creator. And I need to adopt a proper attitude when I enter into His presence. Now, He can extend the scepter and and we can go from there. But when I come before Him, folks, I promise you, 
I don't come like this. I hope I don't. We come humbly, softly, repentantly before Jesus. We don't make demands of Him because He doesn't owe us anything. We acknowledge that it was my sin that nailed Him to a tree and that His love and mercy kept Him hanging there until my sin was paid in full. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that He's my Savior. And I recognize His greatness and His love for taking my place in judgment. There's no demands I can make of this individual. Or what? I saw demands. All Jesus has to say is, or what? What are you going to do if I don't? I mean, how ridiculous, how ludicrous is that whole situation? That comes from not knowing who God is. That comes from an ignorance of who Jesus Christ is. Folks, you've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to know who God is. You've got to have a relationship with Him. You've got to know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings. You've got to know Jesus Christ. We humbly and repentantly bow before Him and confess our sins because only the humble, repentant heart finds forgiveness. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, Thou wilt not despise. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So I need to come before Him brokenly, repentantly, softly. And I need to confess my sins to Him. And I will receive forgiveness. He will forgive me, folks. He's faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But I've got to adopt a proper attitude. He doesn't owe me anything. There was another thief who adopted an entirely different attitude. Matthew records that both thieves were mocking Jesus initially, but Luke records perhaps a change of heart for the second one. Two thieves, exact same situation, both being crucified with Jesus. One ends up being delivered, saved, believing, and the other one doesn't. How does belief enter into a person's heart? Have you ever asked this question before? I have. How can two people hear the same exact message, experience the same exact things, encounter Jesus the exact same way, yet one decides to live for Jesus and the other one walks away? How does that work? How does that happen? Well, we certainly have a part to play in one's salvation, sharing the Word of God, sharing our testimony, leading them to Jesus. But at the end of the day, folks, there's not a whole lot really that we can do. The work is a spiritual one. It's, it's the leading of the Holy Ghost. Only God can give someone godly sorrow. Only God can lead someone to a place of repentance. Even in this, there's free will at work because God's will is that everyone be saved, right? And yet not everyone comes to a place of repentance. 
God will reveal everything we need to be saved. He's going to make the choice as easy for us as possible. But at the end of the day, it's our choice. He won't force repentance on anyone. He won't force salvation on anyone. I've got to come to that realization, that need, that decision myself. You know, there's uh, we talked last uh, this Wednesday about the Navy SEALs and all of that stuff. During that last final week, they're up for five and a half days. They get four hours of sleep the whole week. Twenty plus hours a day of physical training. At some point in time, the instructors know, they understand that at some point uh, you achieve what's called muscle failure. And it doesn't matter how mentally strong you are at that point. You are going to fail to do what is asked of you because your muscles just don't work anymore. The lactic acid, the fatigue poisons in, you, in your musculature, they just build up to the point where they don't function anymore. If I got under a, a bench press and started pressing uh, up to 100 times, I'd never make it. Eventually, I can't press anymore. The first one, pretty easy. Eventually, it's going to get harder and harder to the point where I can't do it anymore. That's muscle failure. They know that. The instructors know that. You're going to fail at some point to be able to do this. But that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for what's, what's your attitude when you get to that point. Is there something inside of you that, that is trying to push through that? Is there something inside of you that's trying to push through the fatigue, push through the exhaustion, push through the hunger and the, the pain and the discomfort? Am I seeing something inside of you? That fire. Is there a fire inside of you? Folks, when someone comes to the Lord with that fire in their gut, there's nothing you can do or say to them that's going to chase them away. Nothing. You can ignore them. You can you could even ridicule them. But nothing is going to keep them away from this. Because they got something inside of them. I need this. This is what I've been looking for. They're not here for you. They're not here for me. They're here for God. They're here for Jesus Christ. Conversely, if you don't have that fire in your gut, you're going to find every reason to walk out that door and never return. You're going to listen to that bug that they plant in your brain. Why are you going through this? Just give up. Ring the bell. My humble suggestion, friend, is to get a fire in your gut. Stop finding excuses. Stop finding reasons to miss church. Stop, and I'm not saying anyone here is, but in general, out there in the ether, stop finding reasons to not serve God. Start finding reasons to get closer to God. Start finding reasons to do more for God. Get a fire in your gut. These are the end times, folks. Jesus is coming back soon. Is there not a cause? There most certainly is a cause. Let's find a reason to fight. Let's find a reason to move forward in God. This thief responds properly. He rebukes the other thief for his mocking. He confesses to Jesus that he's being justly punished for his crimes and that Jesus is being unjustly condemned. I'm guilty. He's innocent. 
He acknowledges that Jesus is exactly who He says He is and asks Him to accept Him into His kingdom. Well, He wasn't baptized though. He wasn't filled with the Holy Ghost. Yeah, we understand this is not New Testament yet, right? He's still under the Old Covenant. Without hesitation, Jesus received the thief into right relationship with him. Luke 23, 43, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. In a moment, just like that, Jesus had forgiven the thief and saved him. I don't know what the thief did. I don't know what kind of life the thief lived, but it got him all the way to the cross here. He must have done something pretty heinous, pretty awful. In a moment, Jesus had forgiven him, saved him. Afterward, I imagine both thieves continued to labor under the intense pain of crucifixion, and they both eventually died. That's recorded. The second thief, however, he was now filled with hope. Jesus said, you're going to see me again. You're going to live past this. But when he saw Jesus again, it wouldn't be the battered and broken Jesus hanging on a cross. It would be the glorified Jesus, the Lord of glory, shining in splendor, welcoming him into his presence. Praise God. This brings up a question. How just is a deathbed conversion anyway? Jesus saved this guy. I mean, for all we know, it could have been moments. Half hour, an hour before he died. Hours for sure. Less than a day. What could the thief do for Jesus? He didn't teach any Bible studies. He didn't witness to anybody. He didn't do anything. He didn't join the church. He just hung there and died. Why would Jesus save someone that's on their deathbed? I've said, you know, all of us, we've been living for Jesus, some of us, for a long time. We've sacrificed. I mean, we've, we've paid prices to live for Jesus. Let's see if he didn't pay anything. I mean, he died, but, I mean, he was going to die anyway. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 14, uh, talks about this. I'm going to try to blast through this because I'm running out of time. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And as the story goes on, he's hiring people different parts of the day. He's paying them the same amount, a penny. Okay. Verse 8. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. When they came and 
they that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. Does that sound familiar? But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that as thine and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Folks, it's God's salvation to give. It's God's forgiveness to give. Who cares what it cost us? The price is cheap. Is God just or isn't He? Is He righteous or no? Because if He's not, folks, I mean, we need to talk about getting a Rotary Club started or something. Because we're wasting our time here. He is just. He is righteous altogether. And if He saves someone on their deathbed, praise God. Because who really paid the price for that? You? The guy on the deathbed? Jesus paid that price. It's His to give. I would to God that everybody got saved on a, on a deathbed if they hadn't been saved before. It's perfectly just. And it's an awesome thing. We can call on Jesus and find a place of repentance no matter who we are or aren't. No matter what we've done or left undone. Came to Jesus early in life or at the very end. God desires to forgive and to make us right with Him. The thief was still under the old covenant, but you and I are under a new, better covenant. Amen. Before I got the Holy Ghost, I tried for a long time, finally got it. Uh, but during that time, I was really thinking it would be better to be under the Old Testament. Because then all I'd have to do is climb up a mountain or uh, make it to the temple. Uh, and I'd be good. I mean, I can do that. I know how to do that. I don't know how to get the Holy Ghost, apparently. But uh, in any case, it worked out in the end. But this new covenant is so much better. It's so much greater. And we are a part of that. God has made us a part of this new covenant. Amen. And it's available to everyone at any time if they'll turn to Him. In conclusion, God's grace and mercy are so much greater than we can imagine. This experience of the repentant thief gives us a glimpse of how limitless God's grace really is. <clears throat> the Lord takes great pleasure in saving those whose sins and failures were particularly abundant. We see that in the former thief, now child of God, we also see God's great grace in Simon Peter, who denied he even knew Jesus after the crowd arrested the Lord. We see it in Paul, who hated Jesus and tried to destroy the church. God saved both of them and raised them into great saints and leaders in His newborn New Testament church. We see God's grace great in Mary Magdalene, who sinned so much, she had been possessed by seven demons. But Jesus graciously and powerfully delivered her, and she became one of Jesus' most loyal followers. She stood by Jesus at the cross, and Jesus honored her by first appearing to her after He resurrected. All these flawed people are trophies of grace, and thankfully, so are we. Our experience may not be as dramatic as the thief's. Frankly, thank God for that. 
But in some fundamental ways, our experience is greater than the thief's or anyone's experience who died before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and before the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Truly, the thief and others like him experienced salvation, but they didn't have the privilege to be baptized in water in Jesus' name and to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. We get to experience that wonderful new birth ourselves and offer that opportunity to other people today. If through our testimony or through the message of the preacher, the message, the Spirit moves on others to bring them to faith and a desire to be saved, we can lead them to the water of baptism in Jesus' name and to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial sign of speaking with other tongues. The thief didn't get to experience all of that, but for those of us who are here and have, one day we will be with Jesus and with that thief for all eternity. Amen. Again, what an awesome hope we have to look forward to. And it was, it's all possible. It's only possible because Jesus loved us so much that He forgave us. He wrapped Himself in flesh. He took care of His own justice, His own righteousness. His justice and His righteousness were satisfied at Calvary. So now He can extend mercy freely to whomsoever will. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus, I am so thankful. I am so, so thankful for your sacrifice at Calvary. I'm so thankful that you loved me enough that you decided to take care of the, the just punishment of my sins yourself. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, your continuing mercy, your long-suffering patience toward us. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to forgive. That you loved us enough to establish a covenant relationship with us. You've made this available to anyone, anyone who will turn to You. I am so thankful for You, the relationship that I have with You. I pray, Lord, that You would continue to work in these services, bless the remainder of our time here together, and these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention. God bless you. We'll be back at a quarter till for our worship service.